Welcome to Church Online. I'm Nick Harris, and I really just want to thank Pete, who's sitting in the auditorium here, for inviting me to speak today. As I stand in this auditorium, it's really obvious that things are a little bit unexpected. I'm here with a, a bunch of musicians you've seen, but there's also three incredible people on the cameras, the AV and the sound on the back, who I just want to thank for making this service possible. Look, WA, we're in lockdown, and things are not the way they're supposed to be. And I wonder if you had a tiny experience of that this morning. I know for myself and my family, things were not as we had planned. We, we went out into our driveway for the second year in a row. We had our candles and we had this beautiful moment as I stood there with my two daughters and wife in the cold as the sun was rising, amongst all the trees that surround our place, with the sound of the birds, the ABC broadcast, this is not advertising, that's just what we're listening to, of the Anzac Day proceedings. And as I stood there and I thought for a moment, I reflected on the incredible privilege we have. That privilege, it has come at a cost. And so I'm so incredibly grateful that even today we can walk into this church and we can host an online service when many places around the world do not have this opportunity, do not have this privilege. And though there's absolutely no parallel, as I'm standing on this stage today, I'm also reminded a bit of this church's journey. I wonder if you can remember back to when you first started attending, attending Kerry Baptist Church. For me, it was 2004. Yep, 2004. That is an unexpectedly long time ago. I cannot believe that that is not even the same decade that we're currently in. But in 2004, I remember coming to this church and we didn't meet in this auditorium, nor online, but we were actually just across a, a bit of grass over there in another auditorium. I remember that when I used to come to church, this area that surrounds us was just bushland. And often I'd be driving in and I had to slow down to avoid the kangaroos that were just ambling across the road. I remember that as I'd come into the car park, it was a gravel car park and, and dust would billow over everyone as I would sort of skid into the unmarked parking bays, if you'd call them parking bays. I remember when we first moved to this auditorium, there were no curtains, no lights, no sound system, no air conditioning. I remember in summers, we used to bring in these industrial fans that used to be so incredibly loud, there was a challenge to hear the musicians over the fan and hearing the preacher well, that was just a pretense. Yeah, I remember in 2004, things were different. And there's been a journey. I remember countless baptisms. I remember being on camps and going to family pools and local pools and watching baptisms. I remember coming into church and there's been baptisms in the auditorium next door and outside and from the stage. Just incredible moments where people have made these declarations of faith as they shared their, their, their journey with us. Our church many years ago, before 2004, was birthed with a heart to turn itself inside out to meet the needs of the local community. This school was the first ministry of the church. And today we have two churches, two schools, a cafe, a childcare, an after-school childcare program. We have a leadership institute, an athletics, basketball, and soccer club. And I guess if you had said to me in 2004, hey, if you were to project to 2021, what would you expect to be happening through this church and school? I would have said, hmm, well, we're quite small. There's not much around us. So I expect that by 2021 and 17 years time, perhaps God will have built this church to a point where we would be in a safe position to replicate ourselves and maybe even do 
another school. Ah. My expectations were much smaller than what has eventuated. And I, I, I've been trying to figure out, well, why did I expect so little in 2004? And perhaps it's not that I expected so little, but rather that the unexpected has happened in this community. What's unexpected is that this community, this local church, has found itself caught up in God's story. Now, when it comes to stories, I don't know if you've ever thought about the formula of a story, but when it comes to stories, there's, there's sort of this generic narrative process that's commonly used. There are characters that get introduced to us, and uh, there's an initial complication that arises, that overcome it, and for this short little period, things seem like they're good. It's happy-go-lucky. But then a major problem occurs. This is when the aliens arrive, or we discover that Mr. Wright is actually married to Miss Somebody Else, and yeah, that's no good. The funding gets pulled from the sports team, or the witness pulls out and refuses to testify because they're so fearful of persecution. Whatever it is, in, in that generic narrative plot, it's at this point that our story looks like it's going to end sadly ever after. And, and if you're into sort of dystopian or those sort of sads movies, and maybe that is where your movie or your novel ends. But more often than not, somehow a hero finds an unexpected way at the last second to do exactly what is needed. And good triumphs, and it's happily ever after. It's a really common narrative. It works whether it's a comedy or a story about overcoming monsters. It can be used in a 20-minute sitcom or in a three-hour epic Marvel film or, or in a 300-page fantasy romance, of which, by the way, I've read none of those. My wife, many of them, but me, none. Given that absolutely everyone is using the same generic storytelling formula, I think what makes one story stand out from another story is ultimately when something unexpected happens. When something unexpected happens. And so as a church, for the next six weeks, whether it's online or in person, our plan is to journey through some of the unexpected stories in Scripture. And today, the story I want us to work through is the powerful account of the lady from Shunem. I wonder if you remember that account. I wonder if you've heard that account before. The lady from Shunem. Let me tell you how her life story played out. One day, there was a prophet. His name was Elisha, and he was passing through the town of Shunem. And as he's passing through, he encountered this woman who said, Hey, Elisha, 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 stop. Come over here. Come to my house for feed. I'll grab my husband. He's going to throw on this, a barbie. We'll grab some frothies. You're busy, but actually you need to stop. You need to relax. You need to eat. Come over to my place. Now, I have absolutely no idea why this woman invited Elisha to eat at her house. And I, to be honest, don't really know why Elisha said yes. But I can only imagine that the food and the conversation must have been unexpectedly riveting. Because scripture records that from that moment on, whenever Elisha came through the town of Shunem, he would stop at her house and he would dine there. There's this conversation between the Shunemite woman and her husband. In this conversation, she says, hey, hun, that guy Elisha that we've been hosting the last little while, I, I, I think he's a man of God. I think he's a man of God and that he needs a better place to stay. 
hunt. Let's build him a granny flat out the back so that when Elisha comes to town, he can stay with us. And I think being a good husband, he knew that his wife was making the suggestion. She wasn't making a suggestion. She's just telling him what they'd be doing next. So the accommodation gets built. Ah. It's a good story. But if we're to end there, we've gone through just the introduction. You see, there, there is more to the story than the scenes I've currently unpacked. You see, one night, Elisha is visiting, and he's actually lying in the bed in the room that's been made for him, and he's trying to decide, how do I thank this woman for incredible generosity? I wonder if Elisha was a little bit like me. I really struggle to give gifts. I'm kind of uncomfortable with that whole gift-giving paradigm. Elisha does something very courageous. He gets his friend Gehazi to go speak to the woman and says, hey, can you find out what she wants or what she needs? If I had a friend, I probably would have got that friend to ask that same question. So Gehazi goes to the woman and he, he says, hey, is there any way we can thank you for your hospitality and for what you've built for us? And the woman just declines and says, no, look, I've got everything. Have you seen my cars? I've got Maseratis, I've got Aston Martins, I've got Audis and Ferraris. Cars, check. Have you seen this fancy house? Check. Have you seen my social status? Check. Have you seen the good food, the fine wine? You name it, we've got everything. You guys come, stay, and enjoy. But you know, Gehazi, he's a perceptive person. And I think he, he looks at this woman and he notices not all the flamboyance that surrounds her, but her incredible vulnerability. Because as he looks at her, he sees afresh for the first time that though she has everything, her husband is aged. Uh, and she lives in an era where her status is still linked to somebody else's. And someone has to follow and her husband is aged and there are no children. She is childless. And I think Gehazi reports this to Elisha, and Elisha gets it. I think Elisha thinks of how often this couple must have tried to have kids. I think Elisha senses how many times she would have jumped into her Audi and, and driven down to the pharmacy and grabbed that pregnancy test in expectation. I think Elisha understands how many times she would have looked at that pregnancy test and how broken her heart would have been when it came back with negative. I think Elisha had some inkling of what it must have been like for this woman to have suddenly heard that her friends are announcing that they're expecting. How disheartening that would have been. And how she would have just felt awful because she didn't feel happy enough for their gift. So Elisha decides to act. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 16, Elisha says this, and it's maybe not recorded quite the same way that I'm going to tell you, but I like to imagine Scripture as if it's been recorded today. So there's this conversation between Elisha and the Shunammite woman, and this is what Elisha says. He says, hey, you need to go to Bunnings. You need to walk straight through, use your safe WA app, sign in, and then you need to go to the paint aisle. Find your favorite color blue because you've got some decorations to do because this time next year, you're going to have a baby boy. And so for the Shunammite woman begins this crazy pregnancy experience. I think first there must have been incredible disbelief. Then she starts feeling sick and she has a few bouts of vomiting. Nothing out of the ordinary, but it's just enough to make her wonder, is this a little bit of food poisoning or could the prophet be right? 
She, she looks at herself in the mirror and, and she's been craving chocolate and she's starting to wonder, is, are my hips looking a bit bigger or is that the chocolate? And she dares to hope. You see, pregnancy is this nine-month gap of vulnerability between the news that you've received and the delivery of the gift of children. And many of you will know that there's often a gap between God's promises and the life you're experiencing today. There's often a gap between God's promises and the life you're experiencing today. And one of the reasons I absolutely love this story is it's because it's a reminder that when God promises, He delivers. When God makes a promise to you, He will deliver that in His own time as He sees fit. It's a good story. This would be happily ever after. But the Shunammite lady's story goes on. You see, the promise of a son is fulfilled. He grows and one day he's out in the fields with his father when he gets a headache. It seems ordinary enough. I think many of us have had headaches, if not all of us. His dad, being a good dad, says that's enough work, takes him home to his mother and the son rests on his mother's lap and then a few hours later, he's dead. Everything that couple had longed for, everything they had prayed for, Everything they had dreamed about, their miracle child, gone. And I think sometimes when things go wrong, and everyone faces those moments in life where things do go wrong, we are forced to confront temptation to allow the scene of our pain to become the story of our life, to allow the disappointment to define and prevent us from moving forward. And for the Shunammite woman, she is in the scene and her son is dead. And it's her worst nightmare. And I love her response. You see, she goes down to her garage, she jumps into her car, she pulls out her smartphone, she Googles Elisha, she finds out he's in a town nearby, she probably breaks the speed limit, I do not encourage that. She flies down to where Elisha is, she busts in on his itinerary, she is hysterical as she pleads for another miracle. Elisha is moved in this moment, he drops what he's doing, he gets in her car, they travel back to her place, and Elisha enters this room, this house, it's been his place of rest, and he enters the room and there on his bed is lying the boy that he promised as a miracle dead he responded in a pain and he finds himself in this room and he is pacing up and down praying and then he covers this boy with his own body and then God does what only and I need to be clear it is God who is doing this God is doing what only he can do he brings the boy back to life and I don't know how you're feeling on your couch, in your bed, or as you sort of pot around your kitchen while listening to this message, but this is just such a random story in Scripture. I mean, like there is this hopeful introduction. There is all of a sudden uh, acts of kindness and heartbreak, and there's more hope and triumph and despair and miracles, and it's just kind of like going all over the place. And then we get this ending and you presume it's going to be happily ever after because how can you pack so much experiences into one life? But the thing I love about Scripture is that it's not the story like a sitcom that someone has created. It is the account, the account of people's interactions. And so for the Shulamite woman, this is still just another scene. 
it's not where her story ends. There's a whole lot more. And perhaps later today, if you've got a bit of spare time, you can try reading through 2 Kings chapter 4 and then jump to 2 Kings chapter 8 because that's where you find part 2. This lady who's had so much but so little, who has a miracle, who loses everything, who gets another miracle, suddenly finds herself living in a region which is hit by famine. And so she flees with her son to Philistine. The Shunammite lady lives with her son in Philistine for seven years as refugees. When she hears the famine has passed, she returns home. Everything she had had been taken away. Everything she owned, all that she had is gone. And so she does what is perhaps a little bit unnatural but usual in her pattern. Rather than staying in that place of despair, she makes a decision. I am going to go speak to those with authority. I'm going to the king's court. And so she enters the king's court. Surrounded by officials, she enters into a scene where the king is currently speaking to Gehazi. Gehazi. And I love this. I love God's timing. You see, what's happened here is the king has summoned Gehazi, Elisha's friend, the one that asked about the gift. And the king's been asking Gehazi all about this prophet and all about this God and, and what he's been doing. And Gehazi's in the moment of telling the king the story about a lady who was barren but then had a child, but the child died. And then Elisha brought the child back to life. And at that very moment, the lady, the Shunammite woman, opens the door and Gehazi turns, that's her and that's the boy. And it is a remarkable moment. It's something truly unexpected at play. But the unexpected thing is not that the Shunammite woman and Gehazi were in the king's court at the same time. The unexpected twist is that the life of Gehazi and the, the life of Elisha and the life of the Shunammite woman and her family had become intertwined with God's story. It's God's story for God's glory. That's why the king was being testified to. And I think it's unexpected that God would choose to include her in that. And I think the challenge, the challenge for everyone following Jesus today is to recognize that our lives have always somehow unexpectedly been intertwined with God's story. And I think we need to ask ourselves, how might we live so that God's purposes may be done through me for his glory? You're probably aware of the invitation or the challenge, the call that as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to be people that preserve the very best in society and people that point to the hope in Jesus. This is an incredible challenge. And as I've been sitting in the, the, the account of the Shunammite's life, I've been asking myself, well, how did this lady's life become so intertwined with God and his story and what he was doing? And as I've been thinking it through and time is racing, I've pulled just four ideas that I think might be pivotal for us as we, as we live out our faith in WA today. And the very first one, I believe that we see in here that God uses invitational people. You see, Elisha, he arrived in town and scripture records it this way. He says, a leading lady of the town talked him to stopping for a meal. In other words, the Shunammite woman saw a new person and made an invitation. Yes, Elisha was probably well known. There's probably some social constructs there. But nonetheless, she was persistent. She was winsome. She was invitational. So he joined her. The outcome was a collision between someone's ministry and a local person. 
my family and I, we've, we've been living in Forestdale for three years now. And I remember when we were building a house and soon after we moved into a house, that just about every time we'd go outdoors, one of our neighbors would pop their head over the fence and say, hey, welcome to the community. Or, hey, are you moving in? And when we say yes, they'd always say, hey, we have dinner, community dinner. When you get it, you've got to come. And after being invited by numerous people on numerous occasions, it was a little bit like, oh, what have we moved into here? What are we building here? We eventually said yes, and we went along to this community dinner. And as we were in this dinner, we discovered that, in fact, there were multiple community groups that were meeting. They'd been organized by the, the local house church. And that uh, there were people that were Christian at these dinners, but there were also non-believers, plenty of non-believers at these dinners. And after a few weeks, I realized that the, the group that we had joined, that we were part of a group which had the local pastor there and many non-believers, and that our group would go to different houses. And there was this one week we were at this guy's house, and um, there was this private conversation happening between the pastor and the gentleman just before we were about to eat, and I didn't have any conversation at that moment, so I just happened to hear what was going on. The pastor was saying, hey, we're about to eat. Is it okay if we say Grace. And I remember being slightly taken back because the gentleman's response was, no, we don't do that crap in this house. And actually, I got it, got it and I loved the way the past responded, and we had a wonderful night eating. We continued going to those dinners, and a few months later, we had circled back, and we were back at that guy's house. And after a few months, we were at this guy's house again for food, and the pastor wasn't there. And what struck me was as we gathered around the table, I was getting ready to eat because I remember that encounter, when the guy suddenly stops and says, hey, we need somebody to say Grace. I thought, wow, that's a change. One of the Christian men volunteered and prayed, and we ate the food. We kept going for a few months, and I was having a conversation with some of the guys in the local community, and I discovered that same gentleman was now attending the local Bible study. And that story is continuing to unfold today. And I want to be really clear. This is not about Christians hosting people for dinner. The point of the Shunammite account is not about us all hosting dinners. I think the point is this. As followers of Christ, we're called to be invitational. And we need to find ways to throw invitations out to connect people with our lives. The second thing I, I find in this account is that we see a woman who is supporting a ministry. And I think supporting ministry is a ministry. Scripture records the Shunammite woman's conversation. She says in, in verse 9 and 10, I am certain, said the woman to her husband, that this man who stops by with us all the time is a holy man of God. Why don't we add a small room upstairs? I'm not going to labor this point, but there are many people and organizations involved in king, kingdom work that simply would not be possible if they are not supported by others. And I think what generosity will look like will differ for all of us. The third thing that I pull out from her life is that as followers of Christ, we need to be action takers. The story of the Shunammite woman is, is filled with decisions to act, the decision to offer someone food, the decision to support someone in ministry, the decision to hope for something more than the events of it passing, the decision to leave a home, the decision to seek the king's help upon return. If you've been attending this church regularly, you'll be aware that the pastoral staff team have invited us to prayerfully seek the names of people God would have us invite into a discipleship relationship. And then we've been called to, to take action, to be intentional in the way that we engage with them in our relationships. And I love the heart and vision behind this call. It's a call for our church community to take action together. So we should be invitational, support ministry, 
take action. And the fourth thing that I've pulled from the Shinnamite story, I've been reminded, is that God is in every scene. In the invitation to Elisha to dinner, God was present. In the building of a room, God was present. In the miracle of birth, God was present. In the pain of loss, God was present. In the miracle of life, God was present. In the uncertainty of famine and immigration, God was present. In the petitioning of a king, God was present. And I think this message is one for us today. I think it is so pivotal that we understand that over the next 24 hours, there are so many things we cannot control. We do not know in the next 24 hours if our government is going to be saying to us that we're going back to work with pre-lockdown conditions, or if our government's going to be saying to us, hey, you're going back to work, but you have to wear a mask. Schools are back on with masks. We don't know if the lockdown is going to be extended. We do not know how many cases there may or may not be in our state right now. And I don't know how you feel about these options and the uncertainty that surrounds us. But I think right now we call to remember that whether you're in your living room and your kids are going crazy or you're still comfortable, no matter your circumstance, no matter your feeling, I think this passage reminds us timely that right now God is present in our current situations. God is present. He is with you. In fact, unexpected stories. I think the most unexpected story is that God chose to send his son into our world to restore relationship between us. God chose to send his son into the world so that we would experience relationship between him and us in every scene of our lives. I think the unexpected thing is that God would invite us into his story. I think the unexpected thing is that God would be willing to use us in his story, which spans over millennia. Could it be that amidst a COVID lockdown in Perth, God's story and your story have somehow become intertwined? Could it be that in this time where we're supposed to be doing nothing, God is placing on your heart an action for the next little while? Could it be that at this time you've been called to make an invitation? Could it be that as you're spending a bit of time that you hadn't expected that, that you're about to bump into a ministry that you need to support. Or maybe today, this is for you. Maybe what you need to hear is that God is saying today, you need to rest. Rest in the knowledge that no matter what scene is happening in your life right now, God is saying to you, I am with you. So as we transition back into praising God, I'd love to just pray with you. I'd love to just pray that you would have a sense from God what is next. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that amidst all the changes we're experiencing in this place, you are present. I thank you, Lord, that, hey, we are hit with restrictions and yet here we are worshiping you. From a stage with masks on to our living rooms. Thank you that you are bigger than every single situation and that you are with us, irrespective of what's going on. Lord, for our church community, would we experience your presence and the peace that comes with your presence? If we need to invite, step out and be invitational somewhere, I ask, Lord, that you'd give us the right sense and the right time to do that. If we need to step into an action, Lord, would we act with the peace and the knowledge that you're with us? 
If we need to give into something that you're doing, give us the courage to be obedient. Most of all, Lord, would this be a church that is set free in the knowledge that you're always with us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that with your son, all things are possible, including eternity back with you. Amen.